Roger that, Houston. All systems spied by Fox. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Right, welcome to the first ever Nerdfest podcast. We are all very, very excited to bring you lots of nerdy news, references, features, reviews, and all that kind of good stuff. Just to give you a little bit of background as to who we are and, and why we're why we're here. Um, Nerdfest is full of a bunch of uh, mates in Newcastle. Most of us know each other through uh, improv classes, which is led by the uh, lovely Ian McLaughlin. Hello. <laughs> Here we are broadcasting to you from somewhere in the extended universe. <laughs> <laughs> and during our improv classes, uh, we often go to the pub uh, every every night, I think. We, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we a couple of years ago, we got discussing about we wanted to go and see Mad Max Fury Road at the IMAX cinema in, uh, in Gateshead. And um, we all kind of went along and then... The messenger thread that we had um, discussing the logistics of that turned into this big giant discussion about all things nerdy um, and it's become a wonderful thing in my life actually, our Nerdfest uh, messenger thread and so we decided uh, another discussion in a pub just to turn it into a podcast and here we are. So I thought since it's the first ever one, we would all kind of introduce ourselves a little bit and allow people to get to know us. And for that, we're going to talk about what our favourite film or types of films are and why. So Daniel Watkins, you go first. Hello, my name is Daniel and I am a nerd. Um, (laughs) It feels a little bit like a support group here in this podcast. Uh, But I got into being a nerd probably through the bulk purchase when I was about three or four years old of lots of vintage Star Wars figures. I liked playing with the Star Wars figures, had to find out where they were from, watched Star Wars the film, and that was me sorted for life. And I still watch Star Wars pretty regularly. So you got the figures before you'd watched the film? I think I did. I remember playing with Boba Fett before I ever saw him in a film. Um, Not... Yeah, and uh, they were, I got a look, yeah, they were a big bulk buy in a car boot sale, and all of these strange, weird and wonderful creatures and knights with swords and robes and stormtroopers, and from there became the films. I think I watched Return of the Jedi first. I don't think I watched them in order, but that didn't seem to affect my enjoyment. It's always um, best not to watch Star Wars in order. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Right, uh, Ian, favourite film and why? Uh, hello. Uh, well, I actually got into uh, being a complete nerd uh, through actually through TV, through Doctor Who. I was born on the day that Doctor Who was first broadcast. That makes me 54, by the way. Uh, don't look it. Um, yes, and so I became absolutely obsessed with uh, Doctor Who. Uh, have been all my life. Uh, my favourite film, though, is Alien, and always has been. Uh, I remember seeing it for the first time when it came out. I was very young then. And it scared the pants off me, genuinely. It's not so scary now, but I remember being totally shocked at how visceral and how terrifying sci-fi could be, because before then it was all kind of Flash Gordon and and things like that. Ming the Merciless is pretty terrifying. He was pretty terrifying, yeah. Pretty terrifying indeed. Not uh, Not as terrifying as Fu Manchu. No. The Mask of Fu Manchu is one of my favorite films as well. So I think it was 1950s, I think. Terrifyingly badly made up American actor <laughs> doing a bad Chinese impression. But uh, yes. Should I be <laughs> uh, Peter, Peter Johnson, how about you? Hi. Um, I don't, I'm not quite sure what I'd pick as a favourite film. I think what I, what I like in sort of sci-fi stuff, uh, I like things with a strong visual element, uh, say Terry Gilliam or Luc Besson, that sort of thing, where it paints pictures of a, a world that's doesn't relate to the world here. Uh, I also like when sci-fi shows how the future might be. Um, so all the little details you get in some movies, say the way Minority Report shows the way that technology might evolve over time, or or even just little details like saying Total Recall, there's a receptionist and she just touches her fingernails with a little prod thing and changes the colours of the false nails she has. And those little things, and it's also um, interesting to wonder to what extent the fu- what we live in now, which is the future if you're the same sort of age as Ian and I <laughs> sort of um, 
is shaped by what people have seen in science fiction and people kind of imagining what the world will be. I was actually, I mean, when we were young, we didn't have a telephone. There was only a black and white TV. There was no colour TVs. We no mobile phones. No, no internet. No computers. Did you used to live in a cardboard box as yes. well? Yes. <laughs> a you... cardboard box by the side of the road. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like we're heading into Yorkshireman territory. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which, which, you were lucky. Which, which, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I am John. I think I first got into films... Um, when I was a kid, um, my grandma used to babysit us during some holidays and um, half term and so on. And every day we'd go to the video shop and just she let me rent any film that I wanted uh, with no uh, no restriction on age or genre or anything. So I saw some very inappropriate films at a very young age. Um, <laughs> I saw a film we're going to talk about later, um, Robocop, when I was about eight or nine years old, I think, um, which, was a, which was an experience. Um, and ever since then, I've just just loved films and the stuff that goes with them. Um, favorite film, in fact, it ch- changes from day to day. But I would say probably Jaws is the one that I keep going back to, just because it was such a great film and it balances the action and the spectacle and the thrills, but also has the really good, important character moments and everything that you don't tend to get in Transformers and the like. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, fine. I'm I'm Hazel. Um, I tend to like um, going to the cinema for some kind of form of escapism. Not that I, not my life is bad, but I quite I, I like to be entertained. I like to, I, I like really funny movies. I like action based movies. But I also like films that pack quite an emotional punch, and I like films that are based on real life events as well. But I'd say my favourite film of all time, and I watch it about once a year at least, is uh, the film Seven because that's the one that hits hits me the most in terms of it left me uh, not being able to not think about it for quite a while, and I think. There's a couple of really brave choices made in that film. One is that the murders never happened on screen. So it was up to the audience to, uh, based on, um, you know, people reading out the descriptions of the murders or, you know, them chatting about it in the morgue. It was based on the audience to come up with their imagination as to how they were killed. And that's actually far more worse than seeing it on screen sometimes. It's a trick that you know, Spielberg likes to play a lot, you know, that moving uh, gl- uh, water in the glass before the, the dinosaur comes. The, the, the anticipation and tension is uh, heightened because of that. And second reason is because of that amazing ending. I, I did hear that the studio were trying to force David Fincher to change it so that um, Detective Somerset would actually kill John Doe um, and sacrifice himself uh, because David Mills is obviously going through quite a lot having found Gwyneth's head in a box. Spoilers. Spoiler, spoiler, yeah, spoiler alert. Um, I should have said that before. But yeah, they kind of the actors kind of said they wouldn't do the film unless the original ending um, was on it. And I'm so glad that they did because it's one of those rare scenarios where the bad guy actually wins. Right, um, on to our first feature. We were thinking about reviewing Justice League, but then we realised we'd have to go and see Justice League <laughs> in order to, which it's is a very, price to pay. It's, yeah, it's very judgmental. We, we're serious podcasters now, guys. We need to go and review films of uh, all sorts of <laughs> different characters. Um, but no, we're going to have a chat about Thor, Thor Ragnarok, which is the last film we all went to see together. We're going to be talking a few spoilers, so if you haven't seen the film, uh, maybe turn off for about 10 minutes or so. Or go and watch the film, put this on pause, then come back. Right. Correct. Or <laughs> go and watch the film while listening to this podcast. Ooh, alternative commentary. Yeah. That's really bad cinema etiquette, John. Yes. I'd have to throw you out for that. <laughs> okay, I thought the world of you. I thought we were going to fight side by side forever, but at the end of the day, you're you and I'm me. I don't know, maybe they're still good in you, but let's be honest, that path's diverged a long time ago. Yeah. It's probably for the best that we never see each other again. That's what you always wanted. Hey, let's do get help. What? Get help. No. Come on, you love it. I hate it. It's great. It works every time. It's humiliating. Do you have a better plan? No. We're doing it. We are not doing Get Help. Get Help! 
Classic. Oh, I loved it. I thought it was great. I, I wasn't a fan of the the former two Thor movies. I thought they the world they were set in was hard to relate to. I just didn't really care about what happened to Asgard, I found. Um, but I've so much more enjoyed the, the approach taken on the third film. Well, I really liked the first Thor film, the Kenneth Branagh one. Um, I liked the fish-out-of-water element of Thor downing his cup of coffee and demanding another and wandering into the pet shop asking for a horse and that kind of thing. So I quite liked Asgard, but I wasn't too sad to see what happened to it at the end of this one. It wasn't really a place where much was going to happen in terms of the wider Marvel universe, I feel. The key people got out. Um, I've actually been to see it twice, uh, once with you guys and then once when I wasn't having the best day and needed a laugh. Because <laughs> what I loved most about it was the comedic elements and I, I did hear that about 80% of the film was improvised. But the influence of the director, Taika, Taika Waititi? Taika Waititi, excellent director. Yeah, is, is, is very clear and I, I've listened to loads of interviews that he's given and he's very, very funny himself and obviously he does play uh, probably one of the most memorable characters from the film, Korg, uh, and his introduction to the film is, is, is kind of brilliant. Hey, 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 take it easy, man. Over here, a pile of rocks waving at you. Here. Yeah, I'm actually a thing. I'm a being. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Korg. I'm kind of like the leader in here. I'm made of rocks, as you can see, but don't let that intimidate you. You don't need to be afraid unless you're made of scissors. <laughs> just a little rock, paper, scissor joke for you. And I just, I fell about laughing at that point. And it's something that I think J.K. Rowling does very well with humour, where she talks about like an everyday you know, rock, paper, scissors joke and puts it into another context. Uh, and it's just the humour in this film is just brilliant, and um, I like that they were able to give give Thor a really kind of comedic lead. So is it is it right that it was because of the more comedic roles he played in things like Ghostbusters that they kind of decided they should give him a bit more of that? Yeah, and I think he had a lot to do with that himself as well. He kind of um, said to the director, I, I want. To, I think the character's become a little bit dull, to be perfectly honest, and I really want to change it up. And obviously you have Jeff Goldblum as well, uh, playing Jeff Goldblum, which nothing wrong with that does. at all. <laughs> and I did hear that uh, his speech as Grandmaster, um, he improvised something that went on for about half an hour and everyone was just staring at him, just like, actually, don't stop. Let's just hear what you've got to say. <laughs> I really enjoyed it, but I'm going to have one caveat that I, I thought they got Bruce Banner wrong. I thought the Bruce Banner in the film was completely different to the character in the Avengers and uh, the other films he's appeared in. It just it just didn't quite tie in for me. That was my only problem with it. I suppose what you've got there is he's, in the film, he's been the Hulk for two years without Banner appearing, which probably would change your personality a little bit, make you act a little bit differently, at least in the initial stages, which is what we see in this film. Probably he'll be a little bit different in Avengers Infinity War. Again, depending on whether he's more hulky or more bannery or whether he even makes it through alive, as with any of the characters, especially with that big scary spaceship that turns up in the mid-credits scene in Ragnarok, which doesn't look too promising for the people on board Thor's ship. But um, as far as the comedy goes, that was my favourite part mm. of the film. Just the scenes like the one with Korg or where Thor and Hulk are just talking or Thor and Loki are just having these free-flowing chats. And that's what I like about Taika Waititi films. Uh, what We Do in the Shadows mm -hmm. is one of my favourite films. Great. Hunt for the Wilder People was the best film I saw last year. And Eagle vs. Shark has got one of that one of those very calm, improvisational, New Zealandy kind of senses of humour about it. And he brought that to a superhero film, which was really nice and refreshing. And I would have happily watched more of that. I could have watched the half hour version of Jeff Goldblum talking mm. quite happily and <laughs> could have done without some really. of the action bits. I would have been fine without a big, long battle on the Bifrost at the end and just have more Korg. 
Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I liked uh, the new female character, Valkyrie, as well. She Valkyrie was, was awesome. really good. Yeah. Which is something superhero films need, is uh, strong female characters. Does she turn up in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Uh, there is an Asgardian at some point in Agents uh, of There is, it's not her. That is, with S. That's Lady Sif. Lady yeah. Sif. Who was absent from this film because... Very the, good at cleaning. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the actress who played her, I think, has got a series in America, so they couldn't tie up the schedules. So that character disappears, which is probably just as well because Kate Blanchett would have probably killed her in about five seconds, mm-hmm. as she did with most of the Asgardians. So do you think, I mean... Some people complain that because there's so much comedy in there, there's no no feeling of excitement or danger. Um, I think that's probably a pro- if it's a problem, which I'm not sure it is. It's a problem with Marvel generally. Like even in the first Avengers, which is a fantastic film, you know that ninety nine percent chance they're not all in peril or real peril at any point, they probably will all make it out alive because they've all got sequels lined up. To some extent, that's the problem with superhero movies anyway. And in that case, the um, the element of danger has to be in the people around the lead characters, the person who's invulnerable. It's how do they protect the people they love and care about um, because they themselves are invulnerable. So that's always my problem with James Bond films. You have this big, exciting sequence at the beginning where people are shooting at James Bond and will he get out alive? You're like, well, of course he will, because otherwise the, the next two hours would be very dull. <laughs> <laughs> I think there were stakes um, and hammers. Um, the hammer was destroyed, which was quite an interesting move to make quite early on in the film, uh, which shows that Thor, even though he is a god, can be put in some level of danger, he's not nearly as invulnerable as he thinks he is mm-hmm. or thought he was, mm-hmm. which was quite a nice thing to just take away the bits that appeared to make him him and let him find a new element mm-hmm. to did his they identity. Do, did they do that at the same time as they cut his hair? Is that also <laughs> some sort of Samson-esque thing of where you cut the hair that yeah. uh, their abilities change? Possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked Stanley's cameo as the hairdresser. Yes. Yes. That was very That's good. good, the barber. Yeah. What's his best cameo, do you think? Is it that one? Isn't he, is he in a strip club in Deadpool? Yes, he is. Yeah. He gets called the dirty old man in some... Or there's, there's something weird like that. One mm-hmm. of, one yeah. of the, he, uh... he plays the late Hugh Hefner in the first Iron Man. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I think it's probably the first Stanley cameo I noticed is maybe still my favourite one. It's one of the X-Men films, and he's just in the front garden um, doing the lawn with his mm-hmm. hose pipe. And suddenly some massive Magneto Phoenix event happens and he just looks up quite surprised, but not that surprised. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that's always stuck in my head. I think, was it in Spider-Man Homecoming? Isn't he just on the bus at some um, point? That's Doctor Strange. That Doctor Strange? He's, he's on, on the, the bus. bus. Um, right. Where is he in Homecoming? I don't know. He's in there. I remember seeing him at the time, but I can't remember where he is. Spot the stand. Emails, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, speaking of Thor's hammer, um, did you notice that in the... <laughs> I know, sorry, I, do, I just heard that in my head. Um, <laughs> did you notice that in the uh, original trailer, which is actually one of the best trailers I've ever seen, lots of Led Zeppelin, the that scene where uh, Kate Blanchett destroys the hammer is actually in a different setting than it is in the film. It's in uh, set in New York in the trailer. But they made a creator's decision to move that scene out of New York because they thought that Odin shouldn't be like sent to a retirement home and then that's where he would live out his final days. He should be in more more in charge of his final destiny and that's why they moved to, to Norway. But yeah, the environment completely changes from the trailer to the final film. But I thought it was a good decision to make, to make that transition. Yeah, I think it, it looked better in the final film. The only bit of it I was sad about was in the trailer, just for the briefest moment as Thor throws the hammer at Hela, you can see some graffiti on the wall saying Skook's Life, which is a Hunt for the Wilder People reference, which I would have really enjoyed still making it in there. But we still got a Sam Neill cameo, so I'm quite happy. Yes, yeah, those cameos were brilliant, actually. Mm. Yeah, It's like, my God, Matt Damon. Mm. And the least famous Hemsworth brother playing the most <laughs> yes. famous Hemsworth brother with the middle Hemsworth Irony. brother nowhere to be seen. He's quite good in Westworld, though, Luke Hemsworth. Luke Hemsworth. Luke Hemsworth. And he plays a security guy in Westworld, uh, which uh, the actress who plays Valkyrie, Tessa Thompson, is all yeah. also part of. 
and Anthony Hopkins for that matter. It's like a Westworld reunion. <laughs> oh, there's a theory in there somewhere. Could they be part of the same universe somehow? <gasps> yes, it's Viking world. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So that was our review of Thor Ragnarok. Um, I, I didn't review. I didn't do a review because I haven't seen it. <laughs> you, you would like it. There is lots of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Oh well, that's the, it. I'm sold. Probably the best use of the immigrant song you'll ever see in the film. Oh, yeah. uh, the opening credits to Go with the Dragon Tattoo, the American version, the Kavano cover, over like the really dark, twisted version of Bond credits, as the best use of immigrant song. Mm. Ah. <laughs> The best use of the Led Zeppelin version of the immigrant okay. song, I would clarify. <laughs> Actually, Ian, your admission leads us into a nice segue into our next feature. Segue. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, um, yeah, I think we should call it Shameless Gaps Filled. <laughs> we could I just can... call it Shame. Shame. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where one of us nerds who has not seen a, um, a famous nerdy film by now and they really should have done they watch it for the very first time and then come to the podcast prepared to talk about how they how they found it and the first one who's guilty that would actually be me <laughs> i've um I admit to the podcast and the internet, I never saw Robocop. <gasps> shame, shame. Until a few days ago. I, well, to be fair, I thought I had seen it, but it turns out that was Judge Dredd. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, um, I watched Robocop for the first time a couple of days ago, and I have to say, I loved it. <laughs> we get the best of both worlds. The fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you Robocop. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Old Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. Let the woman go, you are under arrest. You, you better back up, pal! Your move, creep. What are your prime directives? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. What is this shit? Anything you say may be used against you. He's a cyborg, you idiot! recorded every word you said. You're dead. We killed you. His memory's admissible as evidence. You're going to have to kill it. I just had the, kind of had the feeling whilst I was watching it, like being transported back to the films I watched when I was growing up. And it's, you know, it came out in 1987. I, I was two at the time, but... Um, <laughs> Um, those those types of films are what I kind of uh, grew up watching, and even John, they probably wouldn't let watch Robocop when he was two. At first, I didn't know what to expect, um, and it opened with the kind of the newscasters talking about this very bleak, um, futuristic Detroit where there's lots of crime, lots of bad things happening, ruled by gangs. Um, so I kind of thought I was in for a bit of a dark dystopian thriller. Um, and then we cut to uh, the scene in the boardroom, these yeah, clearly evil corporate guys saying that they have tried to find a way to uh, um, push back all the crime and out comes this fantastic, awful, like robotic kind of monster. And yeah, they, they decide to test it. So uh, one of the one of the employees pulls a gun on him and the monster says, unless unless you surrender in five seconds, I'm going to shoot you, or words to that effect. Um, so the, the employee puts the gun down and uh, lo and behold, the uh, the monster alien robot does not uh, comply and shoots the bejesus out of him. <laughs> I, yeah, I couldn't quite believe this. I mean, you could see that, like, the what he was wearing, when the explosions going off in his body, this just kept going. And that was kind of a running theme, like people being shot about 25,000 times and not dying. But Hoven doesn't understate things. Yeah. Uh, the best line for me is just after that, after someone's been riddled with bullets for about 30 seconds, it feels like, and someone shouts, 
Medic. Yes. <laughs> Medic. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me like 50 cent. I've been shot nine times. Never dies. Um, no, I, I thought I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And I, I thought the relationship between Murphy and Lewis was good. And it actually added quite an emotional impact when um, it came to kind of one of the crucial end scenes. And uh, Robocop was dropped a load of... Uh, building work on him and it looked like that was the end and uh, Lewis had been shot yeah 25,000 times still still walking and talking and the connection between them was very very clear and I, I really enjoyed that it added a lot of heart to a film that was clearly just kind of an all-out crazy shoot 'em up uh, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all I really really did enjoy it um uh, so I did, I did a little bit of uh, looking up afterwards. Obviously, the director, uh, Paul Paul Verhoeven, is that how you yes. pronounce it? Uh, Dutch director, known for Basic Instinct and Showgirls, I believe. Or Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers, Troopers, yeah. I think this was his first American film. Actually, a lot of the themes um, actually resonated with him growing up in The Hague as a child. as this kind of um, being ruled um, and being very much controlled. And, that, was, and then I, 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 that actually came across as quite serious to me. And I also learned that George Lucas had recommended him to direct Return of the Jedi. Um, he recommended him to Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg saw one of his films and was like... <clears throat> Nah. <laughs> um, and famously, Paul Verhoeven came out and said, uh, I think Steven Spielberg was afraid that all the Jedis would start f***ing. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd have been afraid of far more violent Ewoks yes. in that film. <laughs> shot team. Just Ewoks being shot 25,000 times. <laughs> but I think what's great about that film, and other films, especially things like uh, Robocop, is it's, they're, they're quite prophetic films. When you look now at uh, the de- development of autonomous weapons, and all those terrifying, Drones. creepy uh, robots that Boston Dynamics are producing. Mm. You know, we're not far off something like that. Yeah, yeah. And also the things are being put into um, the hands of private companies like mm. prisons yeah. and various other things like that, mm. which perhaps shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> Wayland Utani. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I loved um, the comedy. I don't, I don't think a film should apologise for not confining itself to one genre because this was an action film. It was quite dark in places, but it was also very funny and very kind of stupid as well. Um, and and that's absolutely fine. I, I, I find that the scene where Robocop, I can't remember the name of the character, but all I can think of is um, Red from that 70s show. That's the guy, Kurtwood Smith, I think his name mm-hmm. is, the actor. He, he arrests him for the first time and um, he's trying to read out, you know, the, the, the his Cla- rights. Clarence you know. Bodica, I think is the character name. Ah, oh, right, thank you. Uh, you know, you are under arrest and then throws him through um, a glass window and, you know, you have the right to remain silent, throws him through another glass window and just, like, can't get through his entire speech without throwing him <laughs> through a glass window. Um, <laughs> No, but was the, the going through the glass window in slow motion because it normally yeah. is in every film I've ever seen when you go through glass window yeah. it's in slow motion yeah so uh, if it ever happened to you you'd, you'd be saying you know you'd be thrown through the window because it should not be in slow motion at this point yeah there's a bit in Blade Runner where um, is it Zola goes through the glass in slow motion, but through the motion, suddenly because right. a big burly stunt man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very obvious, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's um, a bit like that moment in I think it's the third Bourne film where he's diving off a roof through a window but you can just see the window smash a second before he connects with it right, yeah. to make sure there no Matt Damons were harmed yeah. in the making of the Bourne <laughs> Ultimatum. It, it's a million miles away from the kind of films we're talking about, but in Flashdance, <laughs> <laughs> the classic spinning on the head routine that Jennifer yes. Beale does is a bloke, and if you slow it down, you can actually see a moustache. <laughs> he refused to shave it off. Yeah. Known as the, uh, the Superman from Justice yes. League. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, one, one thing that's funny about Robocop in a way is that the sort of um, the people who are very pro-guns um, tend to love the film and don't see the way that it's kind of poking fun at them and saying mm. this is a really bad idea. They take it as face value. I don't think that's quite funny. Yeah. That's a Verhoeven thing going through. His, like Starship Troopers is a satire of right-wing politics and the army and uh, right-wing politicians loved it. Just didn't realise having the piss taken out of them. And I guess with Robocop, it went on and had lots of sequels and yep. a Saturday morning cartoon. I think... He's one of the only action movie characters um, to have appeared on a wrestling show, 
as a character, uh, Robocop teamed up with um, a wrestler called Sting, not to be confused yeah. with the singer, uh, to, to, to battle the bad guys. It's not wrestling's proudest moment, and it doesn't have many, but um, yeah, Robocop does turn up in the real world. So I think after the film was such a success and sequel after sequel started to happen, probably the satirical points got a little bit lost along the yeah. way and it almost became a pastiche and of itself. The, the certificate for the movie as well sort of steadily reduces with every mm. film. So Especially when it turns into a cartoon as well. Movie <laughs> <does>. no. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did enjoy the guy who um, yeah, he got driven into a big uh, truckload of toxic waste and he uh, Paul Verhoeven seems to like to make people suffer within this film and he probably suffered the most. Um, There's like, some long shots of him just gradually getting more um, like that character in Lord of the Rings, you know, the, uh, the, the orc that's got kind of loads of tumours around his face. Um, yeah, that was... Is that the red-haired guy yes. with the petrol station? He's, yes. The, yeah. the actor was also uh, in Fame, which I'm sure you remembers mm -hmm. um they, he kind of sings a sweet ballad in the windows in a window with a guitar it's the same actor right yes <laughs> it was in er as well i think it was the doctor that lost an arm in a helicopter accident and then got killed in another the <laughs> world's worst luck yeah. Yeah. was any toxic waste involved no sadly not no. No. it's quite a common theme toxic waste isn't it yeah if you want to create a superhero or a <laughs> One of my favourite things at the Fringe this year was Toxic Avenger the Musical, which was absolutely brilliant. They'd taken the, the old trauma film and turned it into a big sing-along Western musical. Currently playing in the West End. Is it? I, I believe just outside Leicester Square somewhere mm -hmm. in that London. I remember seeing uh, Forbidden Planet of the Musical. Oh, yeah. Yes. That, that was absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. Did it feature Leslie Nielsen? Uh, no, oh, sadly. No. But it also had uh, all the all the actors had to play musicians, uh, play musical instruments as well. So the way through all of, there wasn't like a separate band; it was all the cast were there, mm. musicians. Mm. Yeah, it's brilliant. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I, I enjoyed the use of Directive Four, which is um, you know, has three normal directors to uphold the law Save and the to protect trust. the innocents. Yeah. yeah, and Directive Four is he can't uh, do anything to the people who built him. The the corporation is OCP, something like that. Yes. And I thought, oh, there's a twist. Uh, I didn't see that. I don't know if that's just me. I, I never see twists coming. And then at the end, when they're in that boardroom scene, and um, actually, to be actually one other point, I thought the prosthetics were brilliant. I know that uh, the actor suffered a lot from being in that suit, but even he admitted at the end that it was worth it. But yeah, he's revealed to have his full face at the end uh, in that boardroom scene. And then, um, yeah, the, the main evil guy was like, you, you've found me out. I've uh, murdered one of my colleagues. Um, so I'm just going to hold another one hostage. And um, I was like, oh, how are they going to get out of this one? Because he can't shoot him. You're fired. Oh. <laughs> very good. Very simple, but very effective. And then, yeah, he gets thrown out of a window. In slow motion. In slow motion. Um, I have a question. Yes. Uh, so you thought you had seen Robocop, yes. but what it was in fact Judge Dredd. Yes. Was it the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd or the Carl Urban Judge Dredd from a few years ago? Uh, but I've seen both. Um, and I actually, Dredd, which I think is Dredd. the, the uh, Carl Urban version, Brilliant. It's, I mean, they were planning a load of sequels, but because it didn't do very well at the box office, they decided not to. But I thought that was an excellent film. Mm -hmm. really, I enjoyed really it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a TV series on the way. Yes, yeah, you're right. I, I thought it was a bit like um, Die Hard in the re in the respect of the the first one, where it's all contained in one building. And I like films like mm. that because all mm. the action is is centered around um, you know one one protagonist and and, and one central plot. And I, I, I like that. It um, makes the change from seeing cities destroyed with lots of CGI, which happens in far too many films at mm. the moment. Speaking of lots of CGI, has anybody seen the reboot of RoboCop that came out a couple of years ago? Uh, I have, but I can't remember it much, which is probably a bad sign. <laughs> I remember the original a lot more than I remember the, the reboot. I got very annoyed by his hand. that They kept a, a human hand, just to, apparently to make him seem more human and relatable. But the idea that you create this massive armoured um, enforcer and then just leave his hand there. But but also that's a that's a plot point in the first film, because they the medics go, well, we've managed to save his hand. And the guy says, no, nope, cut it off. Mm. You know, mm. He totally wants to erase every bit of humanity he can. But I think the reboot had a brilliant cast and just wasted it because there was Gary Oldman in there, there was Michael Keaton, Samuel L. Jackson turned up, I think. But it's, it's not a good film. Mm. Poor Robocop. <laughs>
can't catch a break. So should I see Robocop 2, Robocop 3? Robocop 2 has has some... It was written by Covet by Frank Miller. Okay. Um, but it's not got much of the satire of the first one. It's it's a lot nastier. And, uh, and there's a small kid who just swears constantly all the way through it and shoots people. <laughs> um, by the time you get to the third one, you get Japanese samurai robocops and jetpacks. Um... <laughs> Sold. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, not, it's not bad, but it's no short circuit too, is it? No. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, well, yeah, stay tuned for the next podcast when one of the other nerds are going to have their shameless gaps filled. <laughs> <laughs> Last time for a very special guest. So, Mr. Ian Mayer, who is one of our beloved nerd frest, uh, nerd frest, <laughs> <laughs> friends as well. Um, he couldn't be here with us today, but he has very kindly reviewed the very new Star Trek TV series on that there Netflix. Um, so, Ian sent in his views, so we're going to play them now. All our fellow nerds, uh, sorry I can't make the recording today, but um, funny story earlier in the week I banged my head. Uh, sketched a flux capacitor and one thing led to another so I'm currently waiting for a train in 1885 so if the sound quality is a bit off I've had to fashion this microphone from a horseshoe but maybe I'll get there maybe maybe I'm there already already it's uh it's time travel so so who knows uh but what I wanted to talk to you guys about was uh Star Trek Discovery um I promise not to give any spoilers any real spoilers anyway just talk about it a bit in general so Discovery or Star Trek Disco as everyone should call it has finished its mid-season sabbatical. Now, I'm a lifetime Star Trek fan. I prefer Trek to Star Wars, generally. Um, And all in all, I'm kind of loving Discovery. It's the sixth Star Trek series, or seventh, if you count the cartoon. Always count the cartoon. Um, And Discovery is this kind of tonal mix of next-generation-era Trek. Um, There's tons of hints to the original series um, in the kind of... The Discovery feels kind of like a working spaceship, the same way the original Enterprise does. Um, there's tons of kind of current Netflix era drama, you know, it's, there's character arcs, death, um, you know, things definitely progress in a serial way. And there's also a bunch of gung-ho, hold my beer bullshit, um, that you'd associate with the Abrams movies. That's not a diss on the Abrams movies, but they were kind of a tonally a bit, um, a bit punchier. Now it's developed by geek royalty, uh, Brian Fuller, who used to work on Voyager and Deep Space Nine many moons ago before developing things like Pushing Daisies and Hannibal, and uh, Alex Kurtzman is also credited as a co-creator. He's a co-writer on the Abrams Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, and a bunch of other nerd properties. He was on Fringe, did Sleepy Hollow. Um, why I mention is uh, why I mention this is, you know, it's got lineage. These these are our these are our nerdy people, and they're people who've definitely thought a lot about Star Trek. So it's uh, so what they've created is something new. It's unlike other Star Trek shows in quite a few ways. Um, one is, we don't really know what it's about. Now, if you think about something like Deep Space Nine, you know Deep Space Nine is this frontier town in space, and it's got a lot of the problems that come with that. Voyager's, you know, the lost spaceship, it's the Odyssey, um, the original series of Next Generation, with missions of uh, exploration. Um, you know, an Enterprise was about the kind of foundation of, the, of, uh, of Starfleet. So what's Discovery's deal? Um, well, the Starship Discovery is a science vessel. It looks like a cross between a regular Federation ship and a pizza cutter, and its uh, designation is NCC-1031. Now, the number 31 is important in Star Trek law because of Section 31, which is Starfleet's spooky Black Ops division. Uh, they've turned up in Enterprise. They're in Deep Space Nine a little bit. They once tried to recruit Chief O'Brien. Now, 1031, Section 31, is that a coincidence? Is it a red herring? Um, no, I think, I, think this is, I think this is what it's about. So... Um, the ship is a spooky science vessel. It goes into black alerts. It's captained by a guy called Gabriel Lorca, who's obsessed with war and technology. And he has an eye condition that means he must stay in darkness. Um, he's played with the kind of creepy charm and threat by uh, Jason Isaacs. That's Lucius Malfoy. It's Draco's dad. We can't trust him. Um, now, the ship itself, the Discovery, is special because of the revolutionary engine that allows it to travel anywhere via spores harvested in subspace. We have a pizza cutter flying through mushroom subspace. Coincidence? Yeah, in this case, that's probably a coincidence. Um, now, this kind of spore engine thing allows the ship to travel anywhere at any time. 
And that's the weirdity of like recent treks. The writers have decided to eliminate distance from being the problem. In the Abrams movies, or the Kelvin universe, as people call it, there was the transwarp equation, which allowed people to teleport from anywhere to anywhere, including onto uh, ships in warp. Um, that's nuts. Why, why remove distance from being a thing in, uh, in Star Trek? Imagine if Voyager had the transwarp equation. They could have, like, beam home and go back and work a shift. Um, but at least with the spore drive, it's not like, and this kind of navigable subspace fungus network, it's shown as being quite an unusual thing that only one, only one ship can use for, for like, various reasons. So it's not quite the sort of universe breaker of transwarp, but it's still kind of weird. Um, the other thing that, that's very different about Discovery is it's not about a crew, really. It's not about this kind of interconnected ensemble of characters. Um, there's definitely a main character here, which is uh, Michael Burnham, played by Sonika Martin-Green. Um, she is notable for being Starfleet's first mutineer. She's a human. Uh, she was brought by Vulcans and is, in fact, Spock's steps- uh, stepsister. Now, do you remember Spock's half-brother, Cybok, from Star Trek V, The Final Frontier? No, no one does. But it's, uh, it's interesting because they're building this lore around, around the, like, the Spock family. Uh, Christmas is becoming a bit crowded on, uh, on Vulcan. Um, now, if the show's got an arc, it's centred on her. It goes from her being uh, a first officer to a convict and joining the Discovery. And also, uh, it's about her reconnecting with her humanity. We'll see, you know, being brought with Vulcan, she's got this kind of repressed Vulcan mentality. Um, we're going to see where this goes. Um, not to single out, the rest of the crew is uh, roundly great. Uh, I really enjoy her mate Tilly, who's this perky, beer-drinking, fun... I don't know what you call it, but she's a lot of fun. Now, there has been some criticism of the show online in that people are saying it feels a bit dark, or it doesn't feel a bit Trek enough, or it's not science enough, or it's a bit silly. Now, I get that, and I think that's absolutely deliberate. And I'm kind of loving it. It's weird, it's punchy, it's kind of seat-of-your-pants action sci-fi. Um, and what I would say is, if you watch the first nine episodes of any of the other Trek series, I think you find Discovery's faring pretty well. Also, if you're not even slightly amused by mushroom-powered starships, then I can't help you. Uh, Discovery's finished on Netflix. Now it's going to return in the US on Sunday, January the 7th, and on uh, UK Netflix probably the night after. So uh, my train's here. Got to go. Uh, peace out, nerds. Thanks for that, Ian. Um, I have not seen the new Star Trek f- uh, series. Another whole beats filling. So uh, others discuss... Uh, I loved it. I love it. I think it's brilliant. Uh, there was a lot of backlash right at the beginning. Uh, all the nerds going, this isn't Star Trek. It's nothing like Star Trek. And it does take a while to settle. Uh, but now I think it's become an all-time classic Star Trek series. I really do. Do you think it takes a while? Or is it just that, as a viewer, it takes a while to get adjust to what's different yeah, about it's the, the same as It's the same as having a female doctor. It's going to take a while when people try new ideas. Um and it is. It, it comes. It comes in from a very different angle at the beginning, but then does settle down into a classic, you know, uh, group of characters on a ship. They even go to a planet at some point. <laughs> no red shirts, though. Sadly, it, it's a bit of an odd choice, though, as well, because they dis- what they decide to do in the first two episodes mm. is kind of different to what then happens later on. Yeah. So you're yeah. not seeing the characters that you're. You, often with these sort of shows, it's you know how do I react to this crew. Um, how do I want to spend time with these people and that's the thing you can't answer for the first two episodes because you don't actually you haven't yet met the crew of the Discovery which is kind of weird it's weird because it sets up one character as the main driving character in the series but that kind of dissipates by about episode four or five when you start getting all the other storylines happening and she kind of disappears into the background a bit but it was an interesting way in I thought Mm -hmm. Uh, I love I love the crew the crew were brilliant Hilarious, especially uh, I've not got his name, character is now a very tall, the, the guy. Eight, eight foot bloke. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's Doug Jones in it who plays him, who was in a lot of the Glamour do or Glamo Del Toro films. The Adam, yes, he's Glamour. Uh, yes. uh, was it um, something Sapi- Doug Sapiens? Abe Sapiens, yeah. Uh, and he's the guy with the um, hands in his hands eyes in his hands <laughs> in uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Yes, he doesn't mind a bit of prosthetics, no. And 
that's the sum of my Star Trek Discovery knowledge because <laughs> I haven't watched any Star Have Trek series. Oh, no. no. Another gap needs filling. Yes, uh, about 400 hour-long episodes and 10 films by yeah. the uh, yeah. time of the next show, please, Dan. Yeah, yeah. That, see, that's why I've never got round to it. There's just so many. It's too intimidating. Yeah, send in your top 10 Star Trek episodes and I'll just watch those. Yeah. I like what Ian was saying about um, tonally quite similar to the Abrahams, a- Abrams? Abrams yeah. films. I, I really enjoyed those Um well, maybe not all of them. Into Darkness isn't very good. Then, yeah, the second Benedict one. Cumberbatch is very good. Bendy back Cumberbund. But um, you know, I were discussing the the second one just probably a year after we'd seen it, mm-hmm. and neither of us could remember anything. No, of the no idea what it, which is a and terrible Bendy thing for a film. Doing his bendy bits, but apart from that, no idea. Yeah, and I do prefer the original Wrath of Khan. Yes. Couple of things that troubled me about Discovery is I'm not sure about the spore drive. They can just mm. appear anywhere instantly. Well, it seems by the end of the series they've come to say, "Oh, we can't do that anymore." Can't, can't use it anymore. They? Something like that. Yeah, mm. that was a bit a bit handy, wasn't it? Be able to pop up anywhere in time and space. Well, it wasn't time. It's like they invented it just so they could do the um, Starfighter thing of having uh, what's it, the Death Flower or something? I'm sure someone knows the name. Of yeah, it. there's a thing in the last Starfighter where the the Mm-hmm. Um, fighter plane can do a ridiculous manoeuvre where it fires yeah. in every direction at once yeah. and it's almost like that in reverse yes it is yeah. I got very annoyed by the um, the technology in it that is so far advanced above what's in the original series and the next generation despite this being set beforehand yep. so suddenly you've got holograms appearing instead of people on TV screens and things yeah. like that that was the same problem with Prometheus mm-hmm. they, you know set well before the original Alien and, and the technology is way way ahead and they, and they try and they go oh yeah but this is like a Company ship, so it's a lot more expensive. <laughs> not the biggest problem with Prometheus, to be fair. No, it's not. <laughs> it's one of many. Yeah. I think in Star Wars, they try to explain it away, don't they? As in the prequels, about the like the apex of the Jedi's and it's all the new shiny technology. And then by the time you get to New Hope, it's just like the remnants. After yeah, the, the rebels have to make do with yeah. what they've got, and the Empire have lots of shiny things. Shiny stuff. Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll definitely start watching. Uh, it, not least for Jason Isaacs, who uh, Ian, Ian mentioned is very good in it. I last saw Jason Isaacs in the film uh, The Death of Stalin. I don't know if anyone else has seen yes. that. Yeah, it's utterly hilarious. Yeah, it's brilliant. He is very very good yeah. in it. As he's just yeah, he's the like field marshal officer, Zukov, the, the man who won the Second World War for the Soviet Union. Yes, essentially, and he knows it. Oh yeah, and he has a lot of fun um, just kind of playing the other characters off each other, and has a lot of fun with uh, Khrushchev, and uh, in his Yorkshire accent, just kind of goes, "Look at your face." So yeah, it's a funny. Sorry, film. John. Yeah, it's by it's mm-hmm. by Armando Inucci. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, so right. oh, yeah. it's kind of playing this very clever political comedy of one extremely powerful man dies and they get a lot of comedy out of the start of it and there's an orchestra who've played a concert and the man who's been broadcasting it on the radio gets a phone call from Stalin saying I want the recording Uh, give it to my men in half an hour but they didn't record it they just broadcast it live so he has to hurriedly try and get the orchestra back fill up the audience and try and make the sound levels exactly the same the conductor faints and they have to go and find the only other conductor (laughs) who hasn't been arrested by the secret police yet and get him in in his dressing gown to conduct it and just this climate of fear and then you go to the the inner circle of stalin and they're all trying to just stay on the right line of not getting instantly killed Mm. And it's very clever how people like Michael Palin, Simon Russell Beale, um, Steve Buscemi and all these other characters play off each other, trying, especially when Stalin dies, to be the one who takes over. Yeah, mm. they, um, they have to go home at the end of each day and tell their wives or significant others what they said in front of Stalin so they can read it back to him and then know how much trouble or not they're going to be in the next day. <laughs> and um, yeah, I was, read- I was listening to an interview with the director that... That first scene with the orchestra was not made up. That actually happened. And I think there was like worse things that actually happened within that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Simon Russell Beale's character, Beria, is a horrible man. There is nothing redeemable about him. He will just put you on a list and that's mm. you done for forever. Yeah. And he's the one who thinks he's going to be the next one in. And luckily that's not what happened. Um, but there's a sub-story with 
Michael Palin's character, I think it's Molotov, mm-hmm. his wife had been taken away. She'd been on a list. So he had got used to saying she was a traitor. She did all of these wrong things. And then suddenly Beria trying to get back in favour with Molotov to try and put himself one more step up the ladder, releases the wife from prison. And now suddenly she's never done anything wrong. She wasn't a traitor. But if Molotov says that, it means Stalin was wrong. But if he says Stalin's wrong, that'll put him on a list. But he can't. And he's his crisis is trying to figure out what he's supposed to say, whether he's supposed to be okay with his wife or not. Yeah. Because um, he doesn't want her to die, but he doesn't want himself to die. Uh, but somehow Armando Nietzsche manages to play this for laughs, which takes a lot of work and very to do good with the writing. of impending death hanging above you. Yeah, um, very clever script. Yeah, they don't take that lightly. The, the death, and, you know, the, the horrible things that are happening are played straight. It's just the mm. comedy of the characters all jostling for position. It's very much like um, the thick of it. I mean, the loop like that. Yeah. But Jason Isaac's probably my favourite. Yes, he's the, he's the only character in the film, or the only actor in the film, not using his own accent. Mm. Uh, all the because they said like they didn't want everyone doing like a generic Russian accent, so the dad said basically just all do your own accents so it'd be more mm. natural. But then Jason Isaacs wanted to be like this blunt speaking Yorkshireman because he thought it suited the character. Yeah, and it does. Which brings us neatly back to Discovery. Jason Isaacs, the captain. What do you think of him as the captain in Discovery? He's he's great, uh, especially if you compare it to the Orville, which I'm sure we'll talk about in relative to this as well to see the difference a, a captain can make. Uh, it's it's a complex character. You, you're really not sure almost entirely whether he's an entirely good guy or a bad guy. You've not seen him do much to imply he's a bad guy. Maybe it's the fact that he doesn't seem to follow the Starfleet way of doing things that you you know you're sure there's something lurking there under the surface somewhere. Is that didn't, what you feel? didn't he send his girlfriend stroke partner off to be killed by Klingons because she was about to relieve him of his command? That was quite bad. Oh, he, he didn't make much effort to get get him out of there. Yeah, he didn't really. He didn't really protest when no. she said she'd go because she was the only person to go in there try and parley with the Klingons. Um, I can't remember what that actress's name is, but I fancy her beyond belief. <laughs> and I'm very jealous that Jason Isaacs gets to go to bed with her. Discovery. <laughs> the other good thing about Discovery is the T-shirts. Yeah, they're, they're, they're running. They're great. T-shirts with Disco on them. I think it's just brilliant. Yeah. I want one for Christmas. Thank you very much, nerds. <laughs> <laughs> do, we, do, do we know why they're going for Disco as the um, the tagline or the, the shortened name for it? Is there a joke coming here? No, um, this is genuinely true that um, they have like STTOS for the original series and <laughs> STTNG for the next generation, and then they realise it would be STD. <laughs> so the the chance to go for Disco instead. <laughs> so uh, yes, the Orville then. What do we think? Uh, I found it strangely compelling, even though it's it's rubbish and nonsense in some ways. It's also actually really quite faithful Star Trek in other ways. It's so it, it's and somehow that dichotomy keeps you watching to find out how things are going to go and whether it's going to go all horribly wrong or suddenly redeem itself and become the best thing ever. It's strange, isn't it? It's it's, it's a strange series. Uh, kind of billed as a comedy, but. There's some comic moments in it, and certainly the first couple of episodes, they desperately try to be funny. But they're the worst parts of it, yeah. their, their attempts to be funny. But then they kind of drop that by episode three. Uh, there's still some humorous moments, but they're yeah. much more related to the characters rather than doors not opening and, and ridiculous aliens and swearing. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the characters really develop, uh, uh, and um, Seth, uh, the captain, really starts to uh, bother acting, and he's very good at it. And, and you, the whole thing is, from what I can gather, built out of his love for Star Trek, really, is kind of yeah. why he made an excuse yeah. to be a captain yeah. in a Star Trek thing. He couldn't do the proper thing. He was determined to... Uh... Uh, I uh, read an interview with him when he said, but the only real reason that he did the series is because he wanted to have created by Seth <laughs> at the end of the titles. Right. <laughs> he to have it on a star background. <laughs> have you yet... There's ne- the. I think the weakest, especially from a comedic point of view, is the uh, the pilot, the red-haired pilot. Yes. And and Seth, and there's uh, I don't know if you've yet seen, there's one episode where pretty much the two of them are trapped on a planet, mm-hmm. and it's just the two of them an awful lot of the episode. Yes. And that's awful. Uh-huh. Everything else, though, it's, it's, it's kind of worth watching, but it's one of these things you watch it to kind of mine for good things. Yeah. It's not like the whole thing is something you can yeah. buy into and believe, but it's, it's good. It's and good I, really, I really like the, um, the ship's android, Isaac. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's a sort of classic throwback 50s looking robot with a tin head and, and eye, eye slots. And I watched an episode yesterday, it's a bit of a spoiler, but a hilarious scene where they'd, um, when he was recharging. Um, the, the helmsman's trying to teach Isaac what humour is. And, and so one of the lessons is practical jokes. Uh, and so when Isaac is recharging, obviously unconscious, they dress him up as Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. Right, I'm watching it. He is so obviously, the guy doing the voice is so obviously doing data. And yeah. then the guy playing... I always wonder if it was. It does sound like it, doesn't yeah. it? And then they, um, they have another character which is so obviously Worf with a different shaped head. Or well, him sitting on an egg is the funniest thing I've seen in a long time. <laughs> Especially with his backside. His <laughs> backside. <laughs> Brilliant. There was some discussion, they were saying like how they've got away with it because apparently it's so, so, so close to the next uh, generation. Like it's a... Uh, Beyond parody, the copyright lawyers probably should have been involved at some point. Maybe, and uh, it is also a lot of it's sort of written and kind of directed by Brandon Braga, who did a lot of their later yeah. um, Star oh, Trek. And I also series. like that the uh, the budget is way lower than than any of the Star Trek series, uh, and they have some nice little bits of CGI, but there's an awful lot of cheap sets going on. Uh, reuse corridors, but that's why it looks like next generation <laughs> because it's <laughs> relatively cheap. But I, I, I got the impression they actually made it look really good with what budget they had. Yeah. It's a strange shape uh, craft, though. Yes, it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, it, which makes it sense because there's no air in space. And why is it called the Orville? Is it after Orville the Duck? Because it does look no, like a duck. Of course not. Well, <laughs> it, it, second generation, yes, because Orville the Duck is named after Orville Wright, the um, flight pioneer. Which uh-huh. is, the Orville will be named after the same Orville, oh, right? So you and, something. Yeah, and I believe Orville the Duck just wished he could fly. <laughs> <laughs> An important difference. There's no sister ship called Curls the Monkey then, it's... Uh... <laughs> How about a quiz? Quiz. 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 Pop quiz, pop shot. <laughs> Go, pop quiz. Who's got a, who's got a quiz question? Um, I have a question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, relating back to Thor Ragnarok... Um, there, uh, there are two actors in the film who have been in previous Taika Waititi films. Did you spot them and who are they in Thor? Sam Neill was in mm. uh, yes. Yes. Wilder People. Mm. Make that three characters in previous <laughs> Taika Waititi mm. films. Other than himself, obviously. Yes. Jeff Goldblum's right-hand woman is the Child Protective Services Officer in Hunt for the Wilder People and is his directorial lucky charm, so she turns up in most of his films. And one of, the, one of the werewolves from What We Do in the Shadows is one of the people who tries to kidnap Thor when he first arrives on the planet Sakaar, but gets fended off and shot by Valkyrie. Yeah. So she's Ryami's car, in effect. Yes. <laughs> I have a I have a a Ragnarok quiz question, kind of. Uh, which character or which actor has played the same character or versions of the same character in more than one film? Uh, is that Matt Damon playing Loki? That's right. Yes. yes yeah. In um, in that film, and what's it called? Dogma. Dogma. Mm. Yes. Another good film, Dogma. Okay, that's a great film. Yes, but uh, we know why you like that film. Is it to do with Salma Hayek? <laughs> I say nothing. <laughs> um, I don't have a quiz type question, but a general question. Um, and we are going to spend more time talking about this on our next podcast. But what is everyone hoping for, for The Last Jedi? Porgs. All the porgs. <laughs> the porgs are cute. They're great. Mm-hmm. They are cute. Great! You must have a thousand questions. Where's Ray? Something inside me is awake. And I need help. We are the spark that'll light the fire that'll burn the first order down. I was raised to fight. For the first time, I had something to fight for. But there are a, a few new female characters that have been added to The Last yes. Jedi. There's uh, Rose, the resistance mechanic, mm-hmm. who yep. um, yes. goes off and has an adventure with Finn, probably, uh, we think. And Laura Dern's character, mm-hmm. who is a new head of the resistance, who might clash with General Leia a little bit. Do you think Maz is going to return? 
I hope so. I think she's in the in the cast list, yeah. She, great. Do you think Laura Dern's character is so that she can kind of, by the end of this <coughs> one, be in a position to then do what they might have got later to do in the film afterwards? Possibly. Um, already we don't, we know out. so little about her yeah. at this point, other than she has purple hair. Well, they say they've not changed anything because of Callie Fisher. Mm-hmm. That they've not, not reshot or altered anything, whether they would say if they had done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also think um, Disney may think they run Disney, but I think it's Catherine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Kathleen. Kathleen, sorry, Kathleen. who really calls the shots there. And so is it her who's been replacing all the directors? Yes. Yeah. 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 She's very much had her hands on deck and she, she ticked off uh, what you call them from the, uh, the Han, Han Solo, Solo movie. movie. Yeah. But that that makes me even more hopeful that The Last Jedi is going to be really good because apparently Kathleen Kennedy clashed a bit with J.J. Abrams on The Force mm. Awakens. Rogue One had a load of reshoots. The Solo directors got fired. Colin Trevorrow got fired from episode nine. She's had no problem with Ryan Johnson on The Last Jedi, mm. and in fact has given him a whole new trilogy yes. yeah. to work on yeah. himself, yeah. which At last seems I to be the director. I don't have to yeah. sack. <laughs> it seems to be a good sign that if she's happy with it without having to play about with it, yeah. they've mm-hmm. probably got a good film on their hands. I think I think the franchise is safe in her hands, probably because she's evil. <laughs> <laughs> Not evil, no, probably because she's, she's uh, excellent. Uh, strong willed. Strong willed. No, what's the word? Ruthless is the word I'm going <laughs> I think the franchise is in safe hands because I think she's quite a ruthless producer and I think you need yeah. to be ruthless to protect yeah. well, the franchise. Yeah, I mean, there's the story that even in the early days it was Marsha Lucas rather than George Lucas that yeah. ensured the quality of the first Star Wars because she edited it and she took him away from the more, not far fetched, but maybe the more midi chlorian esque yeah. elements he was trying to put in the first film and kept it down to this straightforward adventure story with a big galaxy around it. So maybe Kathleen Kennedy is that kind of a figure. She, um, his, uh, Lucas's wife, she, she cut out that famous scene in the, um, the cantina in town uh, before Luke leaves Tatooine. He goes along and, and, and meets his best friend who's one, one of the TIE fighters at the end. Yeah, big. Yeah, Biggs, and they have this big conversation about, oh, I want to, you know, I want to leave this place, and it's, it's an awful scene with the most dreadful acting that you've ever seen in your entire life, and <laughs> cuts it out. Yeah. And did did some of that make it into the Blu-ray release? Did they put some of the scenes back in, or did they just add them as? I think they just added the deleted scenes, yeah, because yeah, they're yeah. ungraded. And, yeah. But I mean, it's, it's just it's, terrible acting. It's <laughs> awful. It's still left in the original film, isn't it? To some extent, because he's like, oh, hi, old friend that we've not seen earlier in the. Yes, Maybe, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> with your excellent seventies moustache. Yeah, <laughs> not digitally removed in the special editions. We should add Henry Cavill. Um, yeah, so we're all going to see the midnight screening of Last Jedi on the thirteenth of December, fourteenth December. So we're all very excited about that. That's and if we all turn up on the right day, because this is the problem with these midnight screenings. It's, yeah. it's taken us like loads of time to so saying which day is it exactly? Is it Thursday? Is it Wednesday? Yeah. Technically, it's one minute into Thursday's night, but it's still yeah. Wednesday night. Yeah, I'm genuinely asking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think. Wednesday night. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Um, quick, quick <laughs> roundtable. Um, last Jedi question: um, Does anyone have a Supreme Leader Snoke theory? He's Darth Vader. Okay. He's got the scar on the head in the same place as Darth Vader. How do we took his helmet off on the Ninja Dad? Mm-hmm. I think Snoke is the stormtrooper who banged his head in the first <laughs> for the same New Hope film. That would do it, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I think Snoke is probably uh, what was inside R2-D2. <laughs> <laughs> like Davros. Yeah, a bit like Davros, yeah. <laughs> Kenny Baker's not looking good. No, he's not. I, I think he's actually only about two inches tall, yeah. and that's why he projects that massive thing, yeah. just to compensate. Like yeah. a Trump-esque kind of behaviour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that yeah. um, Halloween episode of Buffy, with the really scary Halloween demon, and it turned out he was only a couple of inches tall, and Oz just stood on him, and that was him defeated. <laughs> um, I have a theory that Snoke is a new character we have not met before in the franchise. <laughs> that is <laughs> controversial. I know. <laughs> I know, but yeah, I mean, some of the so things Snoke I've read. Is Snoke. It's yeah, basically, basically yeah. Um, no Snoke, Snoke is an entirely different oh, character with exactly the same name. Um, but I've read some really, really outlandish theories as to linking him to different characters in the films and the extended universe, and you really have to stretch mm-hmm. to explain them. 
That's that's one of the problems I have with Star Wars is that you've got this massive universe and yet everybody seems to be related to each other or know each other or have a have a connection. Yeah. Well, they are starting <laughs> to call it the Skywalker saga mm. now because it is that part of the galaxy affected by the Skywalkers. So maybe Ryan Johnson's new films will not involve anything to do with that. And it'll be a totally different part of the galaxy where other stuff's going on. Talking of uh, extended universe, has anyone seen Caravan of Courage? Yes. Mm. It's one of my favourite films of all time. No, you oh. liar. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give Ewoks their own film. They, they had two films. I think they did like Battle for Endor. Yes. Or of Endor. Um, of and. Of uh, and with. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we ever got around to Caravan of Courage. Caravan of Courage, no way. One of my favourite moments is watching uh, an Ewok flyer hang glider. <laughs> That's the funniest thing I've ever seen. The little legs wiggling around. Well, if The Last Jedi is as successful as they hope it will be, maybe we'll get a Porg film. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. What do we think of Porgs? We love Porgs. Porgs, yeah. Oh, I don't know. It might be a bit, bit Jar Jar. Sceptical mm. about Porgs. I'm, I'm sceptical mm. about the Porgs. Do you think Supreme Leader Snoke is actually a mutant Porg? Perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. Mm. They're yeah. from a Force-sensitive planet. What's your favourite robot of all time, then? <laughs> Data. Data? Gold. Gold. Uh, at the moment, it's Robocop, because that's <laughs> still fresh in my mind. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. What's your favourite robot? <laughs> um, my favourite... Robot will be your Brenner's cowboy from the original Westworld. That's a very good one, yeah. I actually think mine is the Cyclops from the original The Day the Earth Stood Still. Mm. 1959, I think it is. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Not the Keanu Reeves one. No, not the Keanu Reeves one. The, the original one. Um, I found it genuinely disturbing. Oh, I changed my answer. Robot Bill and Ted. From <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, they're, they're brilliant. Yeah. 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 Well, if, um, I suppose if, uh, we haven't been taken over by robots and all turned into mush. We'll be back for another one of these soon. Yeah. Um, yeah, we are on Facebook and Twitter, uh, Nerdfest UK. So please do get involved, discuss uh, and tell us what you thought and give us some um, ideas on what we want to discuss in a future podcast. That would be great. Yes, your feedback would be mostly appreciated. <laughs> Part of things like, it's sh- <laughs> Yeah, uh, give us a review on wherever you get your podcasts, as long as it's three stars or up, that'd be good. Yeah? 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 yeah. Two star reviews Shy are fine, but us. yeah. And we'd we'd like a five. And fire some quiz questions at us. Yeah. And we promise yes. to turn our phones off. Yeah. Yes. Well, from when we get the questions until we record the podcast yeah. two weeks yeah. later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put them in a sealed envelope. Bye for now. We're off to the pub. Bye. Bye.